Well, I would invite you to take a Bible, if you need one, or open your Bible to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, page 721 in our church Bibles. We're going to finish up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in verse 53. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 53, page 721 in our church Bibles. Verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him, and they beat him. Amen. Let's let's take a moment to pray. Just one short verse from a hymn. What you think of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot think right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. Father, as we turn now to Your Holy Word, we ask that we would be taught and equipped by Your Holy Spirit as He leads us afresh to Christ in these verses. And in that, please enable us to live in the truth of what we've been taught. And therefore, God, please be pleased to make these minutes matter forever. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, we are returning, as I said, to our studies in Mark. And you may recall that the context is the early hours of what we have come to know as Good Friday. And Good Friday is the day Jesus Christ was crucified. We took note last time that both in the agony in the garden and in this preliminary hearing before the Sanhedrin, Jesus Christ was alone. He was alone as his disciples have abandoned him. He was alone as even his closest disciples, those who experienced things that the others did not, they have forsaken him. And he was alone as these religious leaders of all people, they cannot stand him and and will in just a moment condemn him to his death. So what we find here is 
Jesus Christ, and I want you to think with me, Jesus Christ is on trial. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the, the kindest, the most loving, most helpful, most brave, always truth-telling, compassionate, people-helping, perfect in mind and in body and soul, the most self-giving person this world has or will ever know is on trial. Now, that should be a bit shocking. How does that kind of thing happen? You see, I think we tend to think that as human beings, we are instinctively able to pick up the good and run to it and avoid the bad and run from it. But here, these verses give to us the picture of humanity. That's so important. This is a picture of men and women by nature and their opposition to God. In other words, everybody is against Jesus by nature. Okay? He's alone. Even his disciples are against him. They've abandoned him. The Sanhedrin, the religious guys, they want to condemn him. The common citizen has been dragged into this and they're helping them and they're lying about Jesus. Everybody, by nature, is against Jesus. That's Romans 3.12. Paul explaining humanity's predicament. All have turned away from God. Romans 5.12. We were all enemies of God. Ephesians 2, therefore, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of his wrath. So lately I've been reading a book about women. Don't be alarmed. It's about Christian women in history. It is a lovely book. I've found out this so far. Some of it you need to be reminded of. Some of it was new to me. One of the first evangelists for Jesus was a Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. The first European convert that the Bible records for us was Lydia, Acts 16, a woman. The first to see the risen Christ was Mary, a woman. Paula is this woman's name. She introduced the, the copying of manuscripts, New Testament primarily, as a work in monasteries. So the monks weren't the first ones to do it. It was actually Paula who in her convent, if you would, had women recopy the scriptures. And then there's this lady named Fabiola, who's fabulous. She built the first hospital in Rome, which means the first hospital in all of Europe was built by a lady. And the reason why I tell you that is I read about Marguerite, Marguerite of Navarre. And she is one of those beautiful women because she, she was born of noble birth. She was known as the protector of the Reformation. And she wrote a book of poems in 1531. And this was the title, The Mirror of the Sinful Soul. And the point of her book is, this is the sinfulness of men and women and this is how God's goodness and grace in Jesus is the person's only hope of rescue. And I say that because, loved ones, that is the rhythm of the Bible. That is the rhythm of this gospel. And that is the rhythm of, rhythm of this text. The depravity of man, disciple or not. So we can build hospitals, but we can also build bombs. We can make love, but we can make war. We can love our neighbor one day, and we can hate them the next if you were here last week, remember that quote from Thomas Bolson? If men knew what was in my heart, I wouldn't have four friends left in all of Scotland. Instead of, there isn't four people better than me in this whole room. The depravity of man. 
God's divine plan to rescue us because without a rescue, without God's grace in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us over and over again our position is absolutely hopeless. And this means, and this is important for you Bible students, this means the truth about Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not some kind of like basic Christian teaching that we can leave behind, but it's actually a lens by which we should view all of the Scripture and all of our life all the time which means every lesson, every sermon is cross-centered and leaves no place, no lines given for human boasting or human achievement, but all kinds of room for the obvious. And what is the obvious? That there's only one person that we should boast of. Christ, His death, His resurrection, because the answer to everything The answer to everything is always Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, Mark Deaver is a man, and he's a well-respected pastor in Washington, D.C. He said, the way you make sure you keep preaching the gospel is to commit yourself to keep preaching the Bible. Because you see, as we study this preliminary hearing, we need to find ourselves here in this story, in different places in our life. For example, like the disciples, we turn our backs on the main and plain teaching of Jesus Christ. We forsake Christ. We deny Christ in the public square. It's called sin. And most of us would confess, externally or internally, we sin every day. It's not flattering, but it's true. So if God's standard is 100% perfection, 100% of the time, and that's the standard, that's the only way we're going to get to heaven. Even if you're a 95 percenter, the penalty is the same as if you were a 10 percenter. And if you're a 95 percenter and you're listening to me, don't be angry. Because if you're going to be angry, you're like the bad son in the story of the prodigal son. Remember the bad son? I've been doing this for so long and you never threw a party for me. Don't be like that. Faith in Christ alone is God's only remedy for our sin. And Christ's righteousness alone is the only righteousness that God will accept. The doctrine of justification meaning many things, but at least it means two things. One, we do not have enough zeal uh, for our morality to pay the debt of our sin. And two, that is why when you actually work through the Bible verse by verse, you discover that this last week of Jesus' life is essentially about 40% of every gospel. In other words, look at what your sin did to him. But look at what he's doing for you in light of it, going right to the cross. So sometimes we're like the disciples, but sometimes regrettably we're like the Sanhedrin themselves. We are religious unbelievers. We are the very people who put Jesus on trial because I think it would be disillusional, uh, dishonest, and dis- to disassociate ourselves with these men and women and say, you know what, we've never have behaved like the Sanhedrin. On the contrary, the Bible would say, we not only would behave like them, we have behaved like them. We think that we can judge Jesus and his truth, that we can meet privately or corporately to conspire against Jesus, slander Jesus, or decide, you know what? Jesus Christ just really doesn't understand all the complexities of 21st century living. So we avoid his truth, or we just twist his truth just a bit to meet our taste. So we have been members of that court. We have been sitting with our prejudices and our passions. We doubt his word. We have unbelief. And again, it's called sin. And think with me about these men, because on one level, they were really good men. They were well-educated, both in the Old Testament scriptures, and they were educated in the law. They were educated in different fields of study. 
They were religious men, which means they worshiped. They sang hymns. They sang psalms. They fasted. They prayed. They gave their alms. They were um, respected leaders in the community. They were, the, if you would, the influencers, the go-to people. And so they were the kind of men that maybe some wives would look at and kind of nudge their husband and say, why can't you be more like them? They really got it going on with God. But you see, Mark carefully records for us, they were so out of touch with their sin, and they were so out of touch for God's only remedy for it, that when the answer is standing right there in front of them, when confronted with God's only remedy for sin, and this preliminary trial... Jesus exposes their depravity, their blindness to his goodness. And the worst part about this, it's veiled in religion. It's veiled in morality. It's veiled in piety because they want him to die like a criminal. You see, Jesus Christ is on trial here in this text, but Jesus Christ is also on trial in this room, and he's on trial in the room in the world. I don't know if you keep up with things, but just in the course of this week, the religious places, hiding, the religious, don't mean to be mean, but Baptist church hiding basically 750 bad people from the court system because they just didn't want to do whatever. I read this morning that there was destroying the records of child abuse cases in the Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church did that. The, the point is, the best of men are men at best. The Sanhedrin should have known better. They had to make up their mind about Jesus Christ. So do we. So does every person in this room. Is he enough? Is he really the only Savior? And should I follow him in everything? So what I want you to see is that Mark shows us ourself in that room and then he shows us our loving Savior. So if a person is reading this for the first time or the 100th time, it doesn't really matter. They both need to be saved from their sin, past sins, present sins, future sins, the exact same way, by God's grace, in Christ, believing on Jesus. And the, if you would, the historicity of this account It only deepens the truth of the theology in this account. That this Jesus can be trusted. He he is who he claims to be. Before we get to that first point, remember now, everything that took place here was planned. Acts chapter 4 verse 28, they did what your power, this was a prayer to the church to God. God, they did what your power and what your will had decided beforehand should happen. And that meant Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. He was a valiant, obedient Savior. And he's taking our place. And he's taking all that cruelty. And he's taking all that injustice. Because it was part of God's brilliant plan to save us from our sin. You can't leave this story not understanding that. Three points. What they did, what they asked what he answered. So the first point is what they did. And, and what I want you to see is that by dent of Scripture and their own legal codes, the Sanhedrin, uh, what they did here was grossly illegal. They started somewhere between 200 B.C. and 57 B.C. Scholars can't exactly nail it down. 
But the point was, one of the things they did to establish a barriers to protect them from their decision-making, which could go amok, is they established some rules, some from God's Word, some from their own mind, to say, when we meet together, here's some barriers or boundaries we should have. And what I want you to see is the ones that I'm going to go through is the ones that they actually broke. And it was wrong for them, of course, to break, but it just shows you the, the heart of man and how delusional we can be. So first, by their own law, the, the Sanhedrin were never meant to meet before the morning sacrifice. So it was illegal to do that based on their own standard. So the morning sacrifice, which was the third hour, which was 9 a.m. in the morning, they had to do that first in order you know, to be right with God before they were ever convened to make decisions. And yet we know that they met in the early hours of Friday morning under the cover of darkness. They shouldn't have done that. Secondly, they were never to meet on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, especially when regarding issues of capital punishment, because the issue was so serious that they said, you know, we need a couple of days to convene through that. So we can't hold court on Sabbath, so we can't meet on Friday. They met on Friday. Third, this is really important. Being a witness in their court was considered, as you might imagine, hyper-serious. If your Bible's open, Mark chapter 14, verses 56, verse 59 tells us that the witnesses did not agree, which meant someone was guilty of perjury in that room. Somebody was lying. Now, in theory, by their own law, what should have happened is that when they discovered that the witnesses did not agree, they should have suspended the hearing, held another trial on another day against each of those witnesses to find out who was lying before they ever proceeded with Jesus. They didn't do that. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 18 and 19 says the perjury, person who commits perjury, that's a capital offense. In other words, the only people who should have been crucified were the witnesses who lied and not Jesus Christ. Fourth, when a vote was taking place for capital punishment, there was required a 24-hour kind of holding, waiting period. Verse 63, verse 64, do you see it there? tells us that that did not happen. They rushed to verdict immediately. Five, the high priest was specifically, and this is important, he was forbidden to tear his clothes in that public assembly. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. The main reason was to not influence people, especially the younger, maybe more inexperienced members of the Sanhedrin. Because, you know, the drama and the emotion of it all could lead people astray. Much like a person crying when telling their side of a story in a courtroom, right? Many people would have empathy or sympathy on them, and they would decide for them, not because of their words, but because of their tears. So in order to guard from that, the high priest was forbidden to tear his robe. He tears his robe. Six, those who rule over the hearing should have been replaced because they had previous knowledge of the case. They met on three separate occasions, privately, in another room, to put their scheme to see Jesus to his death, before Jesus was ever sent to trial. So in another room, they decide he was guilty, and not the room where the decision should have been made. And this is as the idea of slander. Because slander is essentially you're speaking about someone behind their back, and that person cannot defend themselves. That happened. Finally, 
beyond the fact that they changed their decision, or their, not their decision, excuse me, but their charge against Jesus three times. According to Jewish law, and this might be the most telling, Jewish law said a unanimous verdict, which, verse 64b, they all condemned him worthy of death. So a unanimous verdict was considered an acquittal, a setting free of the person on trial. Now that might seem strange, but it has some good logic. What they said was a unanimous and simultaneous verdict of guilty was considered a verdict lacking mercy. So apparently when they made those rules, they knew themselves well. It was thought that any kind of fierce rush to judgment, as was the case here, was the result of some kind of conspiracy, which was also the case here. Rather than a more patient, mature, accurate, law-abiding deliberation, which was not the case here. In other words, what they said is we should hold out mercy as long as possible to see if there's some door which mercy can be opened to the person. And one of those doors to extend that mercy was a unanimous verdict. It's beautiful because God's law knows, knows the nature of men. That's what they did. Treating their own rules and God's law kind of like a wax nose to get what they wanted, which was the death of Jesus. So we have to ask the question, have we ever done that? I hope we would admit that we would. Because if we say, well, I would never do anything like that, then we kind of sound like Peter. As a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a pastor, as a member, as a Christian, twisted the Scripture, twisted my own standard to suit my verdict about Jesus, about life, about my family, about my choices, about others, and everything else. Which just serves the point that we should have been crucified. And by the way, the, uh, my confession doesn't grant me forgiveness. doesn't make me better. doesn't make me more humble. Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> Thank you for not saying amen to that. <laughs> At least not out loud, right? <laughs> There's a line to a hymn, Jesus, what did you find in me that you have dealt so lovingly? That's the first point. Second point, what they asked. And the day is really a he. Verse 61, you see it there? After Jesus remained silent to all the buffoonery of the false witnesses. And keep in mind, uh, the Sanhedrin at this point, even with all the mischief, they have great difficulty in framing some kind of case against Jesus. And almost out of a sense of frustration, the silence of Jesus Christ being too much for the high priest, kind of pushing him to the edge. And you know, I was thinking that it tells you what they really thought about Jesus because with all the false witnesses and all the previous arrangements, you would think that you were going to be able to run roughshod over Jesus pretty easily, right? This is going to be an in and out case and we'll be home before breakfast. It's going to be great. For 61b, no, okay, there's a question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Now, the irony of this question is that when he said son of the blessed one, this is some of that twisting. He was using what is called a circumlocution, which is a really fancy way of saying he was using that phrase, blessed one, to make sure that he would not break the command of blaspheming God's name. It's just kind of funny, isn't it? All the intrigue and the deception beforehand. So when he says that, he's like, well, I want to do the right thing here. The irony is rich. His use of the truth is so self-serving. 
The question is, look down please, verse 61. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? That's what he was saying. And they understood that that title, Son of God, was equality with God. A sign of absolute deity. In fact, Matthew 26, I think we mentioned this two weeks ago, when the high priest said that in Matthew, he basically says, swear to God. I adjure you, Jesus, by the living God. That's the heaviest oath the Jewish person could take. I'm putting this oath on you. And again, it's so strange. Why? Because he wasn't thinking through his personal implications. I placed an oath on you. I've been lying about you this whole time. But now I'm telling you, if you lie before God, you're going to be in big trouble. It's a blindness, delusional, men. Paradox is just like too human. They demand truth from Jesus Christ while they're perpetrating lies about Jesus Christ. That takes us to our final point, believe it or not. What they did, their, their preliminary trial, kangaroo court, keystone cops, whatever the silly picture it is. What they asked, are you the Messiah? Are you divine? What he, and that would be Jesus, answered. So at this time, Jesus did not remain silent, did he? He gave a direct answer to a direct question. Verse 62, I am. And this is, this is the high point of Christological zeal. The, the veil is absolutely removed. No more messianic secret, right? No more. I am the Messiah. By the way, while it's true that Mark tells us that verse 65, do you see where they just beat Jesus to a pulp as soon as they condemn Jesus? Luke's gospel tells us that on the way to trial, they were beating the crud out of Jesus. So he gets a physical beat down before he gets to the courtroom. And the reason why I tell you that is when he stands before the Sanhedrin and tells them, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, he is not looking, you know, clean, neat, and smart. He doesn't have a nice sweater on and khakis. He's a blob of a man. He's subhuman. There's blood dripping from him. He's beaten. I mean, on the human level, it's remarkable that anybody would ever believe in Jesus. I mean, think of this. Think of what's going on. This is our Savior. This is his story. A long time ago, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote the book, The Christ of Culture, and it was kind of like a warning to the church. So look, you better take the Jesus of the Bible and not the made-for-TV Jesus or the Jesus that you want. So he's like, don't try to play games with the political Jesus. You know, he can help you win elections. Don't try to play game with the athletic Jesus. He can help you win games. Uh, don't be uh, playing games with, you know, the businessman Jesus. He can really make things awesome at your work. Don't do that. There's just one Jesus. There's just one Jesus. So this beatdown was predicted. Isaiah 52, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. Why? Well, because there was a job to do. There was a service to perform. There was a God to obey. There was a cross to die on. There were a people to save. So this Jesus is, in, is incomparable. So Jesus collates in his answer, by the way, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. You can look that up later. Bits and pieces of Psalm 110, especially verses 1 and 2. Along with his own, this is a favorite line that Jesus says about himself, son of man. And this is one of the greatest moments in all of human history. Because the Jewish expectation was the Messiah was some kind of like nationalistic political hero. He's going to make Israel great again. However, the answer Jesus gives cannot be compressed by a geography or by territory or by nationality. High priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Jesus, I am. 
But if you look at the NIV, it has a period there. In the Greek, there's no stop. It's, I am and you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One. And by the way, that's another circumlocution. So everybody was doing it in the room. Mighty One replaced by Jesus for God. And when the Sanhedrin heard that, this is what they actually heard. Jesus was saying, I am the divine Son of God, Son of Man. I'm at the one, I'm the one sitting at the right hand of God. And I will come in the clouds, this verse 62b, right? To receive his universal and eternal kingdom. I am the divine king. My kingdom will know no end. And when Jesus says that in his confession, his doom is sealed. They would have known that Jesus was quoting from Daniel 7 in Psalm 102. Because Jesus was saying, all people, all nations, all languages, they're going to be given to me. And I'm going to have a kingdom given by God. And my kingdom will know no end, it will know no defeat, and it will be forever. Stay with me. Theologically, they're convinced that Jesus is blaspheming and his claim to be God. Politically, they know that Jesus is finished. Why? Because his confession of king will put him at odds with the Roman government. However, this is probably the most telling. When Jesus says, verse 62b, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, what he's saying to them, and this, is, this gets right to their pride. He's saying, I will be vindicated. You think you're conducting some kind of hearing, and you think that this court actually has the final say? No mere man and no mere woman has the final say. That is exclusively reserved for the judge of all the world. And it's not you in this room. It's me and my father. And what I find really interesting is that the high priest, as smart and religious as he was supposed to be, he didn't even take a moment to think through what Jesus was saying, to consider the evidence that he knew was there, which underpinned the confession of Jesus Christ. Why did he not take a moment? Because probably his conscience was seared. Right? Because that means that no truth could penetrate his conscience. The, the high priest was like, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with any facts. And he showed himself in that room to be a child of the devil. Right? How do I know that? Well, listen to John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Okay, why? Well, he was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he, the evil one, speaks, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? It's a rhetorical question. Answer, no, nobody can prove me guilty of sin. In other words, what Jesus was saying is like, open up your Bibles, guys. Set aside your additions and the expectations that you have in your additions and show me why I am not the Messiah. The high priest won't. He's playing his part well. He's a liar and he's a murderer. Verse 63, he tore his clothes. Right? Remember the tearing of clothes was not allowed, but it was supposed to be a sign of grief. However, this is more like theater. Theatrics. Listen to what com one commentary said. It had become strangely warped, this scene here, when he tore his clothes, it had become strangely warped into a sign of savage joy and a wicked purpose well nigh accomplished. 
a good sentence. A wicked purpose well nigh accomplished. I can hear him in my mind going, Oh, brothers, this is so hard for me to say this. But then it just rolls right off his tongue. Apparently it wasn't that hard. And instead of tearing his clothes, since they were religious, isn't it kind of disappointed that no one said, Hey, you know what, let's just take a moment and pray. This is a big deal. We're about to send this guy to Rome. Let's take a moment and pray. I've been reading another book. It's a book on the life of Ben Franklin. He was a rascal. Do you know that song uh, by the Bee Gees, Staying Alive? It's Ben Franklin. <laughs> you can Google the words later. But even at the end of his life, in a really, really important moment in our nation's history, listen to what he said. I lived, serves a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire cannot, can rise without his aid? And essentially what he's saying is like, guys, we need to pray. Why didn't that happen here? Why didn't someone, some religious person say, guys, just take a moment and let's pray. Nevertheless, the result is that Jesus is used to this by now. His disciples had already left him, verse 64. His, his accusers all condemned him worthy as death, which again, as we said, according to their own law, should have set Jesus free. Their conclusion was absolutely ludicrous, right? This friendless Galilean preacher whose ministry team has abandoned him. He looks subhuman. He's making these outrageous claims of a relationship with God, of some kingdom that's coming that will never end. Remember Isaiah 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, in this room, Jesus has nothing going for him. His looks, his team, the whole room is against him. And God is behind it all. Think hard on that. God is behind all of it. The only thing that Jesus Christ has going for him in that room is the truth. So everything about God is veiled in weakness. And by nature, we cannot stand this way of God. We cannot stand to feel weak. That's why the, all the Christian power-up books are so pow powerfully popular. I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. Jesus is like, I am weak in this room. Verse 65, inhumanity prevails. And so what you see in verse 65, this is the conclusions of religion apart from Jesus Christ. Remember, these were pious men, holy men, scholars, lawyers, influencers. They prayed, they fasted, yet they found it very, very easy to beat the tar out of Jesus. Mark shows us this is what hatred of Jesus does to a person, ultimately. This is what it means to reject Jesus Christ. And church history, of course, is replete with the inhumane, brutal treatment of followers of Jesus by those who say they are the champions of truth. We're on God's side. And apparently they spit. Verse 65. On another human being. How does that happen? It's a sign of universal contempt. I understand that, but how does that happen? How does it take place in the mind of a person to spit on another human being? They blindfold him. They, they strike him with their fist. Prophesy, verse 65, and the guards took him and beat him. 
I was thinking that there's two things that never happened to me in my whole life. I've never been struck by a closed fist in my face at all. I have no idea what that feels like. Don't. <laughs> I don't want to ever have any idea what that feels like. And I've never been spat on. Now, I've spat on my brothers when I was little, but <laughs> what does that feel like? What, what does that do to a person? In fact, the logistics of this beatdown, so as Jesus is leaving that room, he's going downstairs to the courtyard on his way to Pilate. There's literally uh, guards on each side, and they were popping him with their fists. They're spitting on him. They're pulling their beard as he makes his way down the stairs. That's Jesus. That is endless love. That is a love that began before time. That is love that is proving itself in time. This is a love that is in the hardest of times a person has ever experienced. He's loving God. He's loving his enemies. He's loving you and I. He's loving the world. He's keeping every command. He's keeping every statute. He's keeping every principle. He's keeping himself under full control because he knew that we never could. And he's offering the world the gift of his perfection, of his death, of his righteousness as the only way out of God's justifiable punishment on our sin. So what do you do with all that? Well, one thing is like probably you should invite people that don't know Jesus here just so they can hear about this. That would be one thing. Another thing I thought about is we probably should get off our moral high horse if we're on it. Maybe, maybe carry ourselves a bit more humbly and carefully in the world towards others, whether they're Christian or not. And I was thinking maybe like you're real charged up for Jesus, maybe not. That right now you're listening to this and like that is so much love I could run through a wall for Jesus and I would be like careful, a little theatric just like the high priest. He tried it, kind of found wanting. So maybe, maybe it's best to come to the place in our lives that we say on a regular basis, you know, I really don't deserve anything but punishment from God in light of my sin. But Jesus, you stood in my place and you died my death. So instead of saying, well, I kind of deserve all I have and live like you do, or saying, you know what, I deserve a lot more than I have and live like you want to get more, just say, you know what, Jesus, thank you for what I do have. I don't deserve it. Thanking you for providing me with it, the exact measure, because you know best. Because I think what Mark is trying to tell us here is that the only people who are truly broken, who can see themselves in this courtroom and be honest, will be able to receive the blessing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that extends way beyond the blessings of time, which ultimately matter so little. And maybe there's somebody here and then you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop judging Jesus. I've spent so many years judging you, Jesus. And now I'm hearing your story and all I see is that you love me at every part of this. 
beating should have been mine. I should have been put to the cross. So I'm going to bow down to you. I'm going to confess you as the Savior and the King and my Savior and my King. So those are just some suggestions. But whatever we decide, the one thing the Bible tells us, that in light of what's taking place here, there's going to come a day when the whole world, everybody who's ever been, is going to bow to Jesus Christ. So the people who were judging him, flipped, they'll be judged by him. And the only way out of that predicament is to tell the truth about yourself and to believe the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to fill us with gratitude for your love in Christ, a love that we're discovering will never let us go. Though our sins are many, and though our sins increase every day, which is a dreadful thought, but it's true, lift our eyes up to the cross of Jesus Christ, to your relentless, perfect, full love. And thank you that your unfailing love surrounds everyone in Jesus and offers the same to everyone who's outside of Jesus. And forgive us when we we have lived like the Sanhedrin, judging Jesus wrongly and trying to get Jesus to do what we want him to do. Help us to stop doing that if we are and help us to, or please forgive us if we have. Jesus Christ, you are truly magnificent. We thank you for your obedience We thank you that you defeated our enemy, that you won our battle, and you purchased for us eternal peace and eternal life and eternal righteousness. Just so great with you. Amen.